Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The concept of I'm right and you're wrong is increasingly prevalent during the macro-governmental political struggles. How to identify the narcissists in our lives is the topic of this archive edition of Radio Curious in our 2015 conversation with Joseph Burgo, Ph.D., He's the author of The Narcissist You Know, Defending Yourself Against Extreme Narcissists in an All-About-Me Age. Once a narcissist's behavior is identified, it's possible to learn how to coexist and avoid being trapped without compromising one's own mental health, integrity, or ability to succeed, or losing ourself in the process. When Dr. Joseph Burgo and I visited by phone from his home in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado on October 5th, 2015, we discussed two of the eight most common types of narcissists, the bullying narcissist and the seductive narcissist. We began our conversation when I asked him to describe narcissism. Narcissism is really a spectrum um, of possible behaviors and psychological profiles. It's healthy self-esteem at one end and narcissistic personality disorder on the other. Um, I think the people that I'm talking about, the extreme narcissists, they they are not born, they are made by particular environments that they grow up in. Um, I like to say that extreme narcissists are in flight from themselves usually from a sense of core shame or defect or ugliness or deformity. It's the result of a childhood that departs dramatically from what you might normally expect, where, for instance, there's a severely depressed or psychotic mother, where there's violent discord in the household, where there's physical violence, where the father abandons the family, where a parent dies. It's a gross departure from what uh, Donald Winnicott called the blueprint for normality. And what this leaves behind is this feeling of core shame that I talk about. And in response to that, extreme narcissists build and defend an idealized false self-image that's meant to disprove all that shame that they feel. Um, they really view the world in terms of winners and losers. They, they do whatever they can to prove that they are winners, uh, often by triumphing over or defeating other people that they despise, the losers. And in the process, they, they rid themselves of this feeling of, of core shame by really forcing somebody else to carry it for them. So to be clear, it's not a genetic factor, it's a social-cultural factor. I think it is not a genetic factor. How does this differ in other cultures? You're basically looking at the, uh, the North American United States uh, English language culture, is that right? I am. It's a fascinating question, and you know, I'm not a sociologist, but I think you see similar dynamics in, in what are called um, shame cultures or honor cultures, where public face and reputation are zealously defended, and to to lose face is deeply humiliating. So much so that you you might want to kill yourself. I think it's 
it's a similar dynamic where there's some kind of shame that is felt to be intolerable. Um, and if you can't preserve faith, if you can't defend this public image, then you know you want to eradicate it in some way. I do think there's a there's a parallel between these types of cultures and the individual psychology I'm talking about in my book. So you talk about a joyful parent-child interaction that develops a stability as a basis for avoiding a narcissistic behavior? Yes. Now, I think that uh, in the earliest months, maybe the first two years of life, to have parents who adore you and take joy in your presence, that's, that's a normal, expectable experience. That's what Winnicott would have said is in the blueprint for normality. But then I think a little bit later on, there, there's another job that parents have to undertake, which is to curtail grandiosity, to at first make their children feel that they're at the center of their emotional universe, and then to teach them humility, a respect for the rights and feelings of other people, to find one's place in the social order. And if you don't do both of those things, then things can go seriously awry when it comes to narcissistic development. So let's look at a young person up to um, the age of five or six and events then. You talk about the positive aspects of joyful interaction with the parents, but also there's trauma at every level. Uh, Some, it's a gross tragedy. And going back as adults, not knowing what happened to each of us during those first five to seven years of life, can you talk about the effects of that in relationship to a narcissistic behavior in an adult? How does it relate to the overall experience of feeling safe and loved in your world? Um, Is there enough of the latter experience to compensate for the former experience? Is there, on balance, more, more love, safety, and security than there is trauma. Now, in my experience with people that I have worked with, uh, as well as some of the famous people that I talk about in my book, there was some major trauma that was either ongoing, let's say, um, as in the case of, say, Lance Armstrong, or there was a major traumatic event, say, the loss of a parent early on. Um, those kinds of traumas where you lose a parent long before you're ready to deal with it can um, be deeply, deeply scarring and formative. Um, Madonna, for instance, lost her mother at a very early age, and she says, and everybody who knows her says that it is it shaped who she was. Several of the people I talk about were put up for adoption early on, and people who know them will say it shaped who they were. If there is this kind of early trauma, you can spend the rest of your life building and defending an idealized false self that's meant to disprove what you feel about yourself, that you're damaged, that you're unlovable, that you're broken in some way. Let's stay with adoption for a moment. You talk about the maternal bond developing prior to birth. In an adoption situation, whether it's an adoption right at birth with new parents, a new mother with whom there is no maternal bond, and uh, undoubtedly no breastfeeding, how can a person address those issues in their adult life, particularly if they relate to narcissistic behavior? 
It's a very painful thing. I, I think that for some people, the trauma of having been put up for adoption um, shapes them for life, and in certain ways, they never get over it. Even if they were adopted into reasonably good families, I, I hate to sound pessimistic, I think it is formative. I think it, it's a lasting scar. That doesn't mean that they can't lead happy and productive lives, but there's, there's a kind of pain, there's a kind of uh, shame, what I would refer, refer to as core shame, that is the result of feeling that you, you weren't worth holding on to. Even if you understand that your mother might have had very good reasons for putting you into a better home, there's just a feeling that if you were worthy enough, if you were lovable enough, she would have found a way to hang on to you. I think that dealing with that kind of lasting scar is something for psychotherapy. I think it's, it's something that you have to take up over a number of years through in-depth psychotherapy. So in another factor related to, to removing a child from the home, uh, from the Child Protective Services Agency's point of view, the children want to be with their parents. So again, we potentially have a rupture that would manifest behavior later in life. It's a case where, where neither option is good. It's really very sad. I mean, as you say, children... Children just love their parents because, and they attach to their parents because. It's just, it's just the way we are when we come into the world. So they want to hold on to their parents, even if they're very bad parents. And if you remove children from a very bad situation, it's traumatic, even if they go to a better home. So sadly, you know, neither option is a really good one. One is better than the other. So in your book... The Narcissist You Know, Defending Yourself Against Extreme Narcissists in an All-About-Me Age, you have several categories of uh, extreme narcissists. Are there any particular traumas or experiences in early childhood that would lead a person to be a narcissist in one category versus one of the other several categories? I think so. I think that the more traumatic the early background, the more neglect, the more violence there is in the household, the more likely the person is to develop one of the more toxic kinds of extreme narcissism. And, and I think if I put them on a spectrum, I would say that the, the two worst kinds are bullying narcissism and vindictive narcissism. If you think about core shame as, a, as an excruciating sense of internal defect or unworthiness, of ugliness, of deformity, the worse it is, the more you want to get rid of it, and the more violent will be your methods to force it onto somebody else as a way to escape from it yourself. This is the dynamic in, in bullying narcissism, where the bully will identify a victim, the loser, persecute him or her as a way of forcing that person into the role of loser and to carry the projected or offloaded sense of shame. Um, and it can be quite violent. In vindictive narcissism, these people can spend a lifetime trying to um, destroy people who they feel are the source of a narcissistic injury. So 
I, I think the worse the trauma, the worse the form of narcissism. Destroy people who uh, cause the narcissistic injury. Are you saying they take a different person than the actual one who caused the injury early on in life? No, what I'm saying is that each, each subsequent narcissistic injury will revive and reactivate the early trauma. So, say for instance, um, you are an extreme narcissist who has been married, and then the spouse decides to divorce you. Being rejected, being divorced is felt like a terrible narcissistic injury that revives all those feelings of unworthiness, like you're not worth holding on to. And especially in divorce cases that, that turn ugly, you see incredibly vindictive behavior where the worst, of course, is when the, the children are used as weapons in a vindictive divorce where one spouse tries to turn the children against you know, the other spouse. But there are other things like trying to get the other person fired or trying to turn everyone in your social world against the other person by spreading you know, vicious and uh, unfounded rumors about them to destroy their reputation. These things can go on for years and years and years. So in addition to uh, the marital separation, divorce circumstance, this can present itself in public uh, presentations. Uh, do you find that to be an appropriate comparison? I do. The, the stronger comparison I see is, is in workplace bullying. You often see people who uh, are quite vindictive in the workplace and for some slight that you can't imagine, you can't understand why the person is offended or simply because you're better liked or you pose a competitive threat to the person, someone can then spend a lot of energy trying to get you fired, trying to destroy your reputation, um, especially if it's your boss. This can be very damaging to your career. I, um, I, I present a profile in my book about someone who was basically driven out of the workplace by his vindictive boss, and then the boss tried to keep him from getting hired ever after by giving bad performance reviews whenever someone called for a reference. So this could occur within the workplace or by someone uh, going into another workplace uh, from which they have been expelled and being vindictive in that manner? Exactly. You know, the, these people are relentless and they will do everything they can to destroy you once you become a target. Well, I want to ask you about the other kinds of narcissistic behavior, but before we get there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Joe Burgo, Ph.D., the author of The Narcissist You Know, Defending Yourself Against Extreme Narcissists in an All-About-Me Age. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Joe Burgo, let's talk about the other forms of narcissistic behavior. I describe many different types of narcissists in the book, um, from the very familiar and not quite so dangerous uh, know-it-all narcissist. This is a person who is immediately recognizable to everybody who's listening, you know, the type who monopolizes conversation at dinner parties and other social venues, who always seems to know better than everybody else, who has a very skillful way of turning the conversation back to him or herself 
if it uh, ventures too far astray. We've all met these people. They're social bores. Usually you can avoid them. You know, you might humor them and then, you know, politely excuse yourself. We've talked about the bullying narcissist and the vindictive narcissist. Another type that, that might be familiar to people, one who operates in a slightly different, different way, is the seductive narcissist. Unlike the other types of narcissists I profile who try to make you feel like a loser to build him or herself up, this one tries to boost your self-esteem. They build you up. They make you feel like you're fascinating and attractive. But it's all so that you will feel the same way about them. It's all about wanting to get you to admire them and be attracted to them. And it lasts about as long as your uncritical uh, admiration for them lasts. Once you, once you start to find fault with them, you can find yourself moving very quickly from pedestal to trash heap. There are other more familiar types, like a grandiose narcissist. This is probably the most familiar type to people, someone who just thinks he's the center of the universe and exaggerates his accomplishments, takes credit for other people's achievements, just, just thinks everything is about him. Joe Burgo, in looking at your book, there's elements of extreme narcissistic behavior that you discuss uh, that I would think that most every person who looks at it would identify with at some level or another, not necessarily extreme, but elements in their own behavior. Exactly. One of my goals in writing the book was to show how narcissism is really a spectrum phenomenon and that we can best understand the extreme narcissist by understanding our own narcissistic tendencies and how they show up. There's a tendency in um, modern psychology and psychiatry to attach diagnostic labels to people that put them in categories that make them seem entirely other from the rest of us. Narcissistic personality disorder, that's those obnoxious, offensive people who are nothing like me. My goal in writing the book was to say, no, wait a minute, we're actually all narcissistic from time to time. Um, the difference is that these extreme people embody these behaviors and defensive maneuvers we all use on occasion. They do it permanently. It's built into their character and they're relentless. That, that was a big goal in the book. The other goal was really to show how, because of the way extreme narcissists try to make us feel like losers, they try to tear us down to build themselves up, we can best understand and cope with them by dealing with our own self-esteem issues. So, for instance, if you're targeted by a uh, bullying narcissist, you might feel like um, you want to stand up for yourself. You know, you're being you know, made to feel like you're inferior and you might want to fight back. Um, this is a dangerous undertaking because if you challenge an extreme narcissist, particularly a bullying narcissist, he or she will simply escalate the attack. It becomes Armageddon in a way. So you have to learn how to manage your own self-esteem issues hold on tight to your own self-esteem without having to attack the other person and figure out ways to manage the other person's ego without making yourself an even larger target. And some examples of managing yourself without making yourself a greater target? Yes. 
Um, I give an example um, in the book of my encounter with a know-it-all narcissist who really got under my skin. And, you know, I, I reacted in some ways that I later found kind of embarrassing, like I wanted to, to put put her down, cut her down to size, which only forced her to, you know, to keep keep talking. The bullying narcissist is a better example where... Um, I, I give an example of someone in a workplace who really tried to stand up for himself when his boss started targeting him and he went to human resources. He tried to stand up for himself and, and this resulted in him being labeled uh, an, a problem employee. It resulted in the boss trying to get him fired uh, and ultimately he, he was so um, demoralized and beaten down by the experience that you know he started he became depressed. He started having sleepless nights, and eventually, he just had to quit his job. So, fighting back is not the best technique. However, you do have an example in your book of someone who uh, did a similar thing and laid out a, a significant array of evidence about the bullying narcissist. This is the thing: you have to have the evidence because bullying narcissists, other kinds of narcissists in the workplace are often very good at disguising their behavior from everybody else. They can be, you know, model employees when it comes to their superiors and a nightmare for you. So you have to um, preserve all of those toxic emails. Um, You have to protect your own work product. If you can get other people to bear witness and sign witness statements to the bullying behavior, that's on your side. See, the problem is it usually comes down to his or her word against yours, and whoever has the evidence is going to win. So in those situations, we have the private attack from a bullying narcissist versus the public attack. It's a toxic situation, and it's very hard to cope with. Well, Joe Burgo, in addition to having the evidence, how does one cope with it? The most consistent piece of advice I give in the book is that whenever possible, get as far away as possible. I know that sounds cowardly and simplistic, but these people rarely change. They rarely go for treatment, and going up against them is frequently a losing proposition. So if you can, um, get get a new job. Sometimes that's not always possible. So you have to recognize that shame, this kind of excruciating core shame, is the issue, even if you can't see it. You have to kind of imagine your way into the other person's inner world because everything they're doing on the outside disguises that feeling. And you have to do nothing that's going to stir up shame. Again, it sounds kind of cowardly, but managing the other person's ego is part of your unwritten job description. That's a, it's a big job, and it's more than I think many people can manage. It's best to move on if you can. So moving on is total disconnect and go on with the rest of your life. Absolutely. So then let's stay with trying to get into... Uh, and understand the other person's life. It's useful to think about extreme narcissists as ego-inflated and as dangerous as they might seem as toddlers on an emotional level. That's, that's about where they are. So if you can think about the, the, that you're dealing with a child rather than a fully mature adult, that might give you some insight into ways to cope with them. Just as you have to do with toddlers, you have to be very clear on limits. You have to um, 
set appropriate limits and make clear what the consequences are going to be. Unfortunately, if you're dealing with these people, they don't like limits any more than toddlers do, and you're likely to get um, an enraged response. It might help you to, to develop some empathy for them. This is the biggest challenge I present in the book, is to try and develop some feeling of empathy for what these people actually feel about themselves on an unconscious level so that you don't feel the urge, the understandable urge, to retaliate and hurt them back in the way they're hurting you. How do you get that information? One way of of doing it is to do a little research on the background of uh, bullies that appear in the news. I did that. It was very helpful to me to talk about a lot of the cyberbullying cases that have appeared in the news recently, or school bullying. There's been a, uh, an anti-bullying movement that's underway. When you take a look at the background of the people who, who bully, it's not a happy story. You know, they come from very damaging backgrounds, a lot of family turmoil. They were often abused and bullied themselves when they were younger. You know, if you if you want to do a little research into the background of the bully, you'll soon find out that they're, in some ways, very sympathetic because they've suffered a lot already. Well, Joe Burgo, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, the questions that I like to ask: Can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that has shaped your life? Yes, I can. I think the most painful one, but the most formative one, was the moment in my life when I realized that I was trying to make my life look perfect from the outside, like I had it all together, and that I was in flight from shame myself. It was the moment where I really began to understand narcissism and the kind of shame that lies behind it. What shame were you flying from? I came from a pretty dysfunctional family um, with an absentee father and a narcissistic alcoholic mother, and I spent many, many years in analysis. I wanted to make my life look post-analytic and normal, and the truth is I bear the scars of my childhood just like anybody else who had one like mine. So bearing those scars in mind, bearing my handicaps in mind, helps me to function in a in a better way, in a more empathic way, but I'm, I'm not by any means completely over them. How is it going for you? Much better since I stopped pretending that I was perfect. And tell us, uh, Joe Burgo, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? I've never wanted to do anything other than be a fiction writer. Um, I started writing fiction when I was 12, and I would like to feel that as I as I gain in reputation, I can also um, publish novels and other kinds of fiction that are very psychological in nature. I'd like to bring the two halves of my life together, my, my career as a psychologist and my career as a fiction writer together. What's keeping you from beginning the fiction now? Um, nothing. In fact, I have a, a book I'm bringing out myself in the spring. It's three very psychological fairy tales in which I apply all of the ideas that I've written about in this book to Cinderella, um, Snow White, and um, Rapunzel to talk about shame and narcissism. And that brings us to the final question. Is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners? When I was doing my research um, in narcissism, I read a lot of books, and the one book that I felt really 
um, captured the kind of dynamic I was trying to talk about is a book called Why Is It Always About You by Sandy Hotchkiss. Joe Burgo, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Joseph Burgo, Ph.D., is the author of The Narcissist You Know, Defending Yourself Against Extreme Narcissists in an All-About-Me Age. The book he recommends is Why Is It Always About You? The Seven Deadly Sins of Narcissism by Sandy Hotchkiss. This program was recorded on October 5th, 2015. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.